Hey, we're on to chapter 10 in our story, so go ahead and open your storybooks to chapter 10. I hope everyone is still continuing to keep up with your reading. It's going to be, uh, we're, I mean, it's hard to believe this is the 10th week already in this series, and I hope you're just learning a whole lot. Let me pray for us before we jump into the Word this morning. Dear God, just give you praise for this day. Thank you that uh, we could be here studying your Word. I just pray, God, you use uh, what we learn here in chapter 10 that really impact our life. And as we look at the life of this woman who took all of her agony and all of her concerns and she poured them out to you in prayer, Lord, I pray that we can be like that too, that we take everything to you, that we have the kind of relationship with you, that we can just pour out our hearts to you, Lord, and we know that you listen. So, Lord, I pray you, you help us glean some important truths from our text today that will help us live and walk in a closer way with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, before we get to the word this morning, let me tell you about something that happened to me when I was in the ninth grade. In the ninth grade, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and so our youth outings were like going out camping. That's what we did as a youth group. Our youth pastor was real outdoorsy and real rugged, and so we would go whitewater rafting and camping. So this was kind of a normal thing for us who grew up out there. And on this one camp out, I was in the ninth grade, we hiked out into somewhere in the Cascade Mountain Range, and there was this lake out there, and, and that's where we spent a few days. And we went to this spot on this lake, and I remember this so clearly. On this lake, there was a cliff that kind of over over, uh, had an overhang over the lake, and I don't know how high it was, 15 feet, 18 feet up from the water. As far as I'm concerned, it might as well have been the Empire State Building we were jumping off because I don't like heights. And if you know anything about me, if you know me well, I don't like heights. I just don't. I never have. Um, I can get up about five or six feet on a ladder, and I'm doing pretty good as long as that's not anywhere near a drop-off, and I'm okay there. But above that, I'm just, I just don't like it very much. And so this cliff thing was not not my cup of tea, but in the ninth grade, peer pressure seems worse than ever. Every single person in our youth group, boys, girls, they jumped off this cliff, and there I was standing there watching them all jump, and this is what I heard that whole time. Come on, Joe, jump. No, I'm good. Come on, jump, 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 and, and my, I, I don't want to do it. I, I don't want to jump off this. I don't have any interest in jumping. You know, I love swimming. I don't like flying, and so I, I, I don't mind getting down the water. I don't, and so one by one, everybody jumped, and they swam to the shore, and there we were for a long time. And then finally, it was time to go back to our campsite, and there I was standing all alone, the only guy in the entire youth group that didn't jump. And that weighed heavily on me because I wanted to be like everybody else. I didn't want to be the one going back to camp that didn't jump. I didn't want to be that guy. And so I was standing there all by myself, and I just took a deep breath, and I took a step, a couple steps backwards, and I ran and I jumped. And I fell for what felt like an eternity. And I hit the water, and I climbed out, and I was like, whew, I did it. Not because I wanted to, but because I wanted to be like everybody else. Let me tell you something. When we get to the 10th chapter of the story today, and you're going to see this, we're going to see that the nation of Israel, who we've been following for many chapters now, God's chosen people, they uh, are going to behave like a ninth grade kid who doesn't want to be just all alone. He wants to be just like everybody else. 
You're going to see in the story that the people of Israel are going to look at all the other nations and they're going to feel like the loners. They're going to feel like the ones that are the odd ducks. They're going to look at everyone else and go, why can't we be like them? So chapter 10 is still a very rebellious season in the life of the Israelites. We are still in what we're calling the time of the judges. The last three chapters have been during this 330-year period in Israel's history where two-thirds of that time they spent in great affliction because they disobeyed God. So you know the pattern that they're in, right? So you know, one generation they would follow the Lord and then the next one would reject him and so God would allow the Philistines or somebody else to come in and antagonize them, conquer them, and then they would cry out to God and, and God would raise up a judge. Okay, remember we've talked about judge, we've talked about Samson, we've talked a little bit about Gideon before, we've talked about a whole lot of these judges and then they would lead Israel and everything would be good and then the judge would die and then they'd fall back in their old pattern and they would get afflicted again and then God would raise up a judge. This is the awful pattern that the Israelites are in and there's this very telling verse, it's in Judges chapter 21 verse 25 and it just says this everyone did as they saw fit everyone did it that was that was the, that was the time they're living in if it feels right i'm just going to do it that's what this season of the judges was described as and that's israel's history but what we're going to read about today is going to mark a transition time from the end of the judges into a whole new existence. Now, I wish I could tell you that this transition into a new phase in Israel's life um, was one where they left the rebellious ways behind and they entered into this God-honoring way, but that wouldn't be the truth. I wish I could tell you that all their idol worship and everything was left behind, but uh, I can't tell you that because that's not what this new phase is about. This next phase is all about Israel wanting to be just like every other nation around them. That's what it's about. So at this point in the story, we meet a man named Samuel. So please open your story Bibles to page 129, um, 130, I believe that's where we're at. 129, 130, I believe that's the, the page number. Samuel is the last judge in a whole line of judges. The Bible also says he's a prophet as well. And this is a guy, Samuel, who literally has served the, day, the Lord every day of his life. And you're going, how in the world can somebody serve the Lord every single day of their life? Well, Samuel, Samuel did it. It's a fascinating part of his story. Samuel's mother, her name is Hannah. Now, if you've been around church very long, you've probably heard her name before. So like one of the greatest men in the Bible, Samuel, his mother's name is Hannah, and Hannah um, has trouble getting pregnant. And we've seen this before. We've seen other ladies in the Bible that, that God has used that's just having trouble getting pregnant. That's greatly troubled her. She wanted children so badly, um, but she could not have children. And this was absolutely devastating to her. To make matters worse, since Hannah couldn't bear children herself, her husband, whose name is Elkanah, he took on a second wife and he married her and he started having children with her. Can you imagine how awful that would be? You already as a female are feeling incomplete because in this day, especially in this day, if you could not have children, the community looked down on you. 
They, 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 they looked at you differently than everyone else. Like you were marked or cursed somehow. So she was in great anguish. And so then her husband gives up on her. And he's like, I'm going to marry somebody else. Remember, this is the day when what? Everyone did as they saw fit. This is the day they're living in. This is not a season where everybody's walking with God here. They did what they felt, felt fit. And so her husband I see fit to take on a second wife. Now, now let me just say a quick word because I know this question has come up. It seems like some of these godly men in the Bible have had multiple wives. What's up with that? What, why, why is that happening? Um, we, we see it. Uh, Abraham did it. Jacob did it. Others will do it. And I'm going to just say something here up front. It was pretty normal in that day and age for a man to have multiple wives, but it was never sanctioned by God. You're never going to read one time when God said that multiple wives was his desire. God never gave permission for it at all. And we can read all over the, the Bible where God's plan for marriage is one man leaving his father, marrying one woman, leaving their parents, coming together as one flesh, making a family. This was God's design. And even here, we see some of God's greatest people who didn't always do things the way God would have them to be done. And this is another one of those examples where they probably should have known better, but they didn't. Again, everyone saw, everyone did as they saw fit. So here we are. Hannah can't have children and now she has to share her husband with another woman. And let me tell you, if you've read the story, then you know that this woman is a piece of work, isn't she? She's not kind. She's not gracious. She doesn't look at her situation with compassion and understanding. No, she is cruel. She is mean. Her name is Peniah. And I don't know what that main name means, but I'm going to say it's like a Jezebel kind of lady. She's not nice. And she, 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 every opportunity she gets to harass Hannah... She, she does it. So, so let's look at it's 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 7 through 8. Um, story um, at the beginning says, This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. This is how troubling it was to her. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Typical man answer, isn't it? I mean, we haven't changed at all. Aren't I good enough? Didn't you getting to marry me, wasn't that like winning the lottery? Isn't that what you ladies think about your husbands? Aren't I good enough? Why do you need children? You've got me. That's her husband's response. And the next part here, really impresses me. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10. I believe it's on page 130 of the story. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord. Fascinating. In her deep anguish, Hannah went to the Lord. And what an example that is for us. Let's keep reading. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all of the days of his life. It is a powerful moment. When you fall down on your face before the Lord, 
and you are completely vulnerable, and you are completely bare, and you're like, God, this is who I am. It's all I've got. God, I'm coming to you. I've got nothing else. Have you done that before? Have you been there before? Lord, I don't know which way to go, so I'm turning to you. Well, I surrender everything I've got to you. I'm just, here I am, God, whatever. I'm just giving it all to you. Have you, have you prayed like that before? That's in essence what she's doing. Lord, I'm in such deep anguish that even if you were to give me what I wanted, I would give them right back to you. She's in deep anguish. And she's praying so intensely that there was a priest there by the name of Eli, and he was in the room where she was praying. And you know what his response was to how, whatever that looked like, her prayers, maybe it was very unladylike, which you, I don't know, but he took one look at her and said, well, pff, she's drunk. She came up here to pray drunk. That's, that was what he thought. And he confronts her about what he believes is her drinking problem. But then he realized what was happening. And he realized, no, she's in deep anguish and she's talking to God. And there's this moment there. And Eli recognizes this. And you know what he says to her? He says, you know what? God is going to give you everything that you're asking for. So Hannah, she, she did. God answered her prayer. She conceived. She came, gave birth. She named this boy Samuel. And after Samuel was weaned from her, listen to what she did. She didn't forget about her promise. She didn't forget about her vow. She took him to the house of the Lord, and she gave the boy to Eli the priest. You know, the one who said, hey, God's going to give you what you asked for. She takes him back and says, here you go. He's in the service of the Lord. I wonder if Eli said, that's not what I thought was going to happen. It says on page 131, this is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. She said to him, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live. I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. So this has been at least a year now. You know, however long it took to get pregnant and to wean the child and all of that. So it's a good year or better. I prayed for this child and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Hannah was true to her word. This was her offering. Lord, you gave to me, and now I am giving back to you. And so here you have little Samuel. All the days of his life, he grew up in the house of the Lord. I can relate to this a lot. My father was a pastor and was for over 50 years, and sometimes I feel like Samuel. I grew up in the church. Seems like every time the doors were open, I was there. Any preacher's kids in here? Do you guys know what that's like to grow up in the church? I loved it. Every church that I grew up in, we had a gym. And so I would just go up with my dad, and my brother and I would shoot hoops. We'd throw the baseball around. Yes, we did break quite a few things. I remember one day my brother threw the ball, went right through the window of the church. I'm like, good grief, he did it, not me. I remember so many good times growing up in the church. And when I, when I, read, when I, when I read this, I go, I can relate. I can relate. I was preaching this very text a number of years ago when I was living in Kansas City. And uh, my son Brock, who at the time was probably just five years old, um, he was out in the church parking lot shooting hoops. We had a basketball hoop out there. And I was working on this sermon. I looked out in my office, and there was my son, five years old, shooting hoops in the church parking lot. I'm like, there goes my little Samuel. I can relate to this. He grows up in the house of the Lord. This is the world that, that he 
knows. And this is what the Bible says next. This is on page 133 of your stories. We dig into his life. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord, even as a little guy. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his words. And Samuel's words came to all to Israel. So Samuel grows up in the house of the Lord during one of those periods of disarray among God's holy nation. They have been attacked twice by the enemies, the Philistines. And during that second battle, during that second battle, this is when Samuel is growing up, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about the Ark of the Covenant together, but let me just tell you, it is like the most treasured possession of God's people. And that's not an understatement. I mean, there's a long history of the ark, and now all of a sudden, the Philistines have taken Israel's most precious gift from God. And when Eli the priest, you know, the one who told Hannah that she was going to give birth to, that God was going to give her what she wanted, who is Ray Samuel, when he heard the news that the ark of the covenant has fallen into the hands of the Philistines, the very enemies of God, that he fell out of his chair and broke his neck and died. That's how shocking it was to him. What a way to go. And Samuel becomes Israel's new leader after that. And he was a great leader. During his leadership, things begin to settle down. You read about his life. Um, Samuel went through and he destroyed a lot of the, the pagan worship and he tried to obey God with all of his heart and, uh, and, and he was very consistent with his message, destroy the idols of the land, turn away from false gods, serve the one true God. He was a very good leader for Israel. He's one of those heroes in the Bible, but at the same time, his life was not without pain. As you keep reading his story, he was faithful to God all of his lives, but he had two sons and his two sons were not faithful to, to God. In fact, his sons could not have been more opposite than their father. Samuel is not the first, and he's certainly not the last godly man whose children chose a different path. But here's the problem, and this is the part that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But Samuel, towards the end of his life, he wants to appoint his two sons, these two ungodly men, to be the next leaders of Israel. And the people around Samuel, the godly people that were a part of Samuel's life and his inner circle, they took one look at that idea and were like, I don't know if that's a good idea. I don't know, Samuel, if it's a good idea that you appoint your two ungodly sons to take your place. And it says this on page 135 of your story Bibles, and this is all, all of this history here is so important to this transition that Israel's about to make. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. They are not good guys. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old. I wonder how that conversation started. Look, buddy, you're old. You are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now, here's where things take a dramatic turn. Now appoint a king to lead us. 
such as the other nations have. In other words, what they said is this is not a good scenario, but you know what is? To become just like everyone around us. Everybody else has kings. Why can't we have a king? And now it's time that we as a nation, we get our own king. What's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? Well, you're going to find out here. Samuel's leaders said, your sons are no leaders. They can't follow you. It would be disastrous. And they were dead right. They absolutely had the right diagnosis. Your sons do not follow your ways. But they had the wrong solution. Give us a king. The right diagnosis the wrong solution. They had allowed themselves to become so influenced by all of these pagan nations around them that now they wanted to be just like them. Give us a king. And then on page 135 of your storybook says this, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. Samuel takes this very personally. And I think all of us probably would too. I mean, if we're like, no, this is what we're doing. I'm appointing my sons as the leaders. Like, no, we're not going to do that. You'd probably take that personally as well. This, so Samuel does the same thing. No, no, no. I'm taking this very personally. It was very hurtful. But what does Samuel do? He did the same thing his mother did. He takes his burden to God. Now you're going to see a pattern here. Hannah did it, and Samuel did it, and we should do it too. Our burdens, those things that are, are pulling at our hearts and we don't know what the right answers are and instead of trying to figure them out ourselves, he goes right to God and we read what he says on page 135. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Samuel was offended that they didn't want his sons, but God says, Samuel, don't be offended. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. It's not you they've got a beef with. It's me they've got a beef with. And you know what? I want to be their king, but they don't want me, their heavenly father, to be their king. Now, God was raising up this nation, what? To be an example to the world around them. God had a plan. He gave them guidelines. He needed a place to stay, so the tabernacle. And they gave them a way to have their sins forgiven through the sacrifices. They didn't need a king because they already had one. God was their king. And basically what they're saying is, God, you're not our king. You're not our king. We want a king for ourselves, and you're not going to be it either, God. It's not going to be Samuel's kids, and it's not going to be you who led us out of Egypt. You're not our king either. So God's saying, they reject me. And it's kind of like, I relate that like me standing on that cliff in the ninth grade. I want to be like everybody else. And so I jumped. And this is Israel's way of saying, we want to be like everybody else. So let's jump. Friends, I just want you to know, and I hope you'd agree with this. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are not called to be like everyone else. 
God's people are called to be different. God's people are called to be in stark contrast to the world around us. And we stand in stark, stark contrast to the world around us by reflecting God's very character through us. Can I, can I tell you something today, and I hope you know this already. If not, let me just share with you that the most dangerous threat to the church are not these activist groups that get all the airtime on the media. It's not certain communities. It's not discrimination against the church. It is not all these things, not name I'm telling you, those are not the biggest threats to the church today. Persecution is not the biggest threat to the church today. The most dangerous threat to the church today is simply Christians who want to be like everybody else. That's the most dangerous threat to the church today. It's people who say, I follow Christ, but insist on living like and talking like and thinking like and behaving like everybody else. The Israelites wanted to be like all the other nations around them. And they said, give us a king. And so God says, fine. Look on page 135. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what a king who will reign over you, who will claim as his right. So, so God tells Samuel, this is what will happen. And so Samuel turns around and he tells the people. This king, he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and, and, and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkey, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. How could they have that response when Samuel's saying, this is what God says, he's going to turn you into a bunch of slaves. And like, no, we still want it. The people refused to listen. No, we want, we want a king to over us. And then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Do you understand the rejection that they're giving towards God right here? We want a king to do for us what God, you said you would do for us. That's what they're saying. They're turning all their hopes to a singular person and not to God. When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Despite all the warnings, God said, go ahead and let them have what they want. You know, sometimes God allows you to have what you want, even if it's not what he wants for you. It's true. Sometimes God says, just go ahead and let them have what they want, even though it's not my best. And I think if many of us were being honest, we could probably think back at some times in our lives where we said, you know, God allowed me to have that, but I sure wish he hadn't. Because it wasn't his best for me. This is what Israel's getting from God. God 
always prefers that in our lower story that we've been talking about, you know, the everyday grind of life, that we do things his way. Not because he has to have his way, but because he loves us and he has a better way for us to live. God has a way for us to live our lives that he knows in the long run will make our lives better, but we don't always do the things the way he wants us to. As many of us could probably stand up and say, yep, I've been there, and it didn't work out. This is what happens to Israel. They insist on doing it their way. They demand a king, and so it falls to Samuel now. It's Samuel's job to anoint the next king of Israel. So instead of his sons being the ones, Samuel has to change course and select a king. And that king becomes a guy by the name of Saul. King Saul is the first king of Israel. And this, like I said, this marks a massive transition in the story. And we're going to learn more about King Saul in the weeks ahead. He's a piece of work too. And he does not follow the Lord. It says on page 40, but when you saw... The Nahash king of the Amorites was moving against you. You said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is a king you have chosen, the one you have asked for. The Lord has set a king over you. So basically say, Here, here's what you want. Here's you got it. But then God gives them an opportunity to succeed even under this king. He says, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follows the Lord your God, good. He's like, okay, if you want this, as long as you still follow after me and the king does, and you still obey what I want you to do, we'll make this work. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. So God's like, nothing has changed even though everything has changed. You want a new leader? Fine. I'm still your king, and you still better obey what I have to say. And if you do, good. But if you don't, it'll be very, very bad. Ultimately, unfortunately, I would say, Saul takes the reins of leadership as king, and he quickly forgets every warning that Samuel ever gave him. Like I said, we're going to learn more about King Saul and about his disastrous leadership of the Israelites. But I believe as we kind of bring this, this kind of this transitional talk today to a close, there is just one thing that just jumps out at me. And I think there's just one important lesson that all of us can take away from this. And it's, it's this right here. We are called to be different. If you're taking notes today, why don't you, that's the only thing I want you to write down today to remember when you leave here today. We are called to be different. Like it or not, those of us who trust Jesus Christ are his visible witness to the world. That's what we are. Just as King Saul and the Israelites were God's representatives, so we, and I would just say this for clarity, New Testament people, God's people, Christians today, are the representatives of God. And as we're going to learn later in the story, the New Testament Christians, we're going to be referred to as the body of Christ. Most of the people in this world today, they will take, they will get their understanding of God, they will get their concept of who God is from us. Now let that weigh heavily on your shoulders for a minute. 
They're going to look at us, and they're going to develop some kind of concept of God and what it means to be a child of God by looking at you. I kind of think of it like this. We may be the only Bible that some people ever read, and they're reading us. How does that person respond to that situation? Was that a person of integrity? They really believe what they say. People will form all kinds of ideas and opinions about the Lord based on what they read out of your life. And our interactions with people may be the only glimpse of God's upper story that they'll ever see. And that's why we got to be different. That's why we've got to not be like the Israelites here and say we don't want to be like everybody else because we just want to be what God wants us to be. Let me just end with this. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I would say, would you let that psalm kind of guide your every step? Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. In other words, they trust the things that are mighty in this world, but we're going to be different than that. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. We're called to be different. What we're going to see in the next few chapters is because Israel didn't want to be different. They wanted to be just like everybody else. It led them down another disastrous road.